honor to welcome Jay Bennett, my friend. And if you want to know an interesting fact about Jay, he is not the person to play Trivial Pursuit with. He has a remarkable memory. Let me pray for him. Father, thank you for, for Jay and his willingness to, to come and speak. Just I pray that you give him bold, boldness and confidence as he shares your word. And I just pray that we can use, use your word and apply it to our lives every day. Amen. All right. Today I'm going to be talking to you about the moral argument. Now, there are several arguments for the existence of God. And this one, I think, appeals to people's emotions. And so when you're out uh, talking with uh, unbelievers or maybe other believers as well, if you're talking about how we get morals, you're going to find out that you can only have it if there is a God who gives the morals. If not, they're just opinions. So, with that, let's begin. All right. So, premise one goes like this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two... Objective moral values and duties do exist. So the conclusion follows. Therefore, God exists. Now, everybody has some idea of what's moral, but they don't often think about where it comes from. They, they think whatever they feel is moral. But there is no way to prove this objectively unless there is an objective source. So what this really comes down to is that if you're talking to someone about God, but they're not going to accept God, they can't also accept moral values or objective moral values and duties. But the thing is, everybody believes in morals of some kind. So, you have the attention there. So, let's see what a famous Christian thinker had to say about this. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. It says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed to be cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe when I called it unjust? So he puts it very well here that we see so many things in the world that are terrible, you know, evil. And then your uh, skeptic, they're going to say, there's so much evil There can't possibly be a God. But for there to, for evil to exist, you have to have good. It's like uh, you can't have uh, shadows without the light. So, really, the existence of evil helps to prove God's existence, not disprove it. But 
when we are thinking emotionally, we see all this evil. And we say, why does God allow this? And that's another another discussion. That's something that we'll never know. Why does God allow this specific evil to to occur? You know, we can't see why. You know, sometimes something bad that happens now will have repercussions for years or centuries. I mean, it's just something we can't know about that he he knows it all works together for his glory so all right now this is something that you're uh, <clears throat> the people that you talk to might come back at you with if you're if you said well you have to have god to have uh objective morality they're probably going to come at you with some version of what is called the Euthyphro Dilemma. They probably won't call it that, but that's what it is. But, uh, uh, okay. Uh, the Euthyphro Dilemma comes from uh, the Greek philosopher Plato. It's a story he came up with involving his, uh, his uh, teacher, Socrates. And we'll not get into the details, but they're... Not important right now, but basically there's there's two what you call horns of the Euthyphro dilemma. So the first horn is is something good because God wills it, and if it is, what is good is arbitrary. That would mean that God can say this is good and this is good and this is bad, but. Theoretically, he could change it at any time. And something we know is good, he could say is bad, just all of a sudden, or the other way around. So that's the first horn of the Euthyphro Dilemma. Now the second horn, or does God will something because it is good? That would mean that moral values and duties are independent of God. Now, in this situation, that would mean that God would look at something and decide if it's good or bad. In which case, it would not have anything to do with God himself. He would just discover what's good, what's wrong. So that's the other horn of the Euthyphro Dilemma. So if you stop right there, then morality... And God are independent of each other. But it doesn't end there. The answer to the Euthyphro Dilemma is God wills something because he is good. Because morality or objective morality has to do with God's nature. God's nature does not change. And it is Things are good because God makes it makes it so because it is his nature. As we know, God's nature does not change. Okay. So 
the best works of uh, literature that have to do with the moral argument are written by Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky. And he wrote several novels and many other shorter stories, but his two most famous are Crime and Punishment and The Brothers Karamazov. Now, in Crime and Punishment, the main character is a young man who is a law student, and he's about to fail out. And he's a cocky young guy, thinks he has it all figured out. And he has this idea that there are some men that are, that are great, and for their greatness to be manifest, if people had to die in the process, that, that would be just fine. This is something that we see, or we saw in the 20th century on a major scale. So anyways, he's about to, to flunk out of uh, law school. And so his mother and his sister come up with a way to keep him there. Basically, his sister is going to marry this rich lawyer. And so the young man named Raskolnikov is going to be able to become a lawyer and work for this guy just because his sister marries him. And he thinks, no, this this isn't right. There's this rich old lady, who she's a pawnbroker, and she's horrible. And she's just a terrible person, and she's rich. So why don't I just go kill her and take all her money, and then my sister won't have to do this. And so he does. But he can't live with what he, he has done. And through the course of the book... And he meets a young woman who is a believer, and she talks to him about God, and he he realizes that moral relativity does not exist. There is objective morality, and that he has committed a horrible crime, and that he should pay for it. So eventually he does turn himself in, and he's exiled to Siberia. But he is redeemed in the end. Now, on the brothers Karamazov, there's four brothers, and one of the brothers is a an atheist. He's really smart, got everything figured out. And he actually says, if there is no God, all things are permissible. And what happens is it, it inspires one of his other brothers to kill their father. And then one of, or the oldest brother, actually gets uh, blamed for it. And so eventually he sees the error of his ways, but he's not redeemed. He ends up losing his mind. So that's a really simplified explanation of those two books, but they really show the moral argument in its best form. They're just amazing works of art. And so that brings us to our scripture. So we're going to start in Judges 21:25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So right here. I mean, this is the last verse of the book, so it's a summary of what's going on. 
And basically saying people aren't looking to God for what's right and wrong. They're doing it themselves. And if, if you read through the book of Judges, it's just terrible. I mean, there's people getting killed, people doing horrible things. And even even the heroes, you know, the, the judges that God raises up, you know, like Gideon, like Samson, you know, they, they do very well for a while, but even they aren't immune. They get caught up in what they ought not do and have terrible results. So that's that's the verse that really stands out when you come to the idea of the moral argument is right here because God says you're doing this yourself. It's just your opinion and it's going to have terrible, terrible results. And so now let's look at Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say that you are not to eat any tree in the garden? That's the key. Did God really say? Because if if you want to undermine God's morality, his his goodness, what he says to do, the first thing you say, did he really say that? And of course, this is a story we're all familiar with. He uh, convinces Eve to eat the fruit. And it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> so, so then, well, God will come in and uh, say, what did you do? And then he'll curse Satan. And then he'll, uh, and then later, I believe it's verse 15. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that's actually the first uh, messianic verse in the Bible. That he's actually referring to uh, Jesus coming and defeating Satan with a crushes. Well, he will crush your head, and he will bruise your heel. That's a reference to Jesus. So. Now, let's look at Isaiah 5, 20 and 21. All right. It says... Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Okay, now here he's talking about people that invert morality. It's not that they have no morals, it's that they have the wrong morals. Because I've heard 
so much, you know, we, we talk about all the bad things that are going on in today's culture. And you hear people say, oh, they just have no morals, which isn't right. They have a different set of morals. I mean, these people that, you know, us in the church would look at and say they have no morals, they have a very strict moral code. But the problem is they're wrong about a lot of things. But really in America, and maybe the West more generally, uh, we've had a Christian worldview for centuries. So really what we're seeing now is there's a remnant of that, but people are using it the wrong way. I mean, we're taught you're supposed to care for the downtrodden, you know, the outcast, people, people that are weaker than you. You know, we ha- we we're taught that, but there's a lot of people today that are using that wrong. They're turning that on its head. They're they're saying you have to agree with this or that, or you're against these uh, weak people. And so, that's kind of a new development, I would say, that really the, the Christian worldview has kind of been corrupted. I mean, throughout history, we've had, you know, we've had people in power that would just do whatever they would want. You know, power for power's sake. But now they're, well, this power is really what it's about. There's people trying to gain power, and they're using really a perversion of the worldview we've had for a very long time. And if you try to fight with them, they'll say, oh, oh, but doesn't the Bible say this, or doesn't the Bible say that? You know, use use scripture wrongly. You know, we we see that in the Bible uh, well, when Jesus is tempted in the, the desert, you know, we see that. And so, the thing is, most people believe in morals pretty strongly. It's, it's what morals are, are they, or do they really possess? So, now let's move on to uh, Proverbs 1, 7. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So where do we get our wisdom? Where do we get our understanding? It has to start with God. That what God says is what we build everything on. It's the rock. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the wise man builds his house on the rock. And so you really can't know anything about anything unless you know what God says. And so uh, so we'll finish up with...
Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So, this really sums up everything. Keep, or fear God and keep his commandments. That's, that's how you live a moral life. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, whether every secret thing, whether good or evil. So, that's what it comes down to. So, now, this is really well, an introduction to the moral argument. There's several other arguments for God. I mean, they're, you probably aren't very familiar with them, but this is a good one to, to uh, start with. There's, there's several others. So, so whenever you're talking to somebody about morals... You're going to say you have to have God to have morality. And if you don't have God, your morals are just an opinion. And so you're going to have to make them choose whether they're going to reject God or they're they're going to have to reject their moral code. Because they can't have both and be uh, coherent. So... I hope this helps. I, mean, I, I hope I've opened some eyes here. Uh, if you want to know more about the moral argument, you can go on YouTube. There's a lot on this. There's a, the guy that you would want to uh, go to first is a uh, apologist named William Lane Craig. He does a really, really good job explaining all this. So... So, yeah, I uh, hope I open some eyes, and hopefully this will help you to evangelize. Hopefully this will help you to defend your faith. So, thank you very much.